Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe, and I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Andre Ivanov this week. Now, Andre is one of the only people I know who grew up in the 1980s in the Soviet Union. So it was fascinating to hear him recall what childhood was like. And then we talked a lot about his life and his specialty in uncertainty and how we make decisions. I know you're going to enjoy this episode, and so we're going to get straight into it. But before we do that, a big shout out to all of you who are sharing the podcast with your friends. Last week was pretty exciting because I've been running this for three years now, and in one 24-hour period, there was almost 600 listens to the show, and almost 1,500 listens in one three-day period. So I don't know who is out there sharing it, but I really appreciate it. And it's just great to see the show growing and lots more stories being heard by more people. So don't forget that this is episode 225, so that's a lot of content in the back catalog. And there's lots more information at theseeds.nz. Now let's get into this conversation with Andre. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Andre Ivanov, who's a risk and strategy consultant. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, thanks, Stephen, for having me. No, it's great. I'm really looking forward to talking with you because I know we're living in a time of lots of uncertainty, and that's something that you're um, talking with people about, you know, thinking about the future, how do they shape decisions. So I'm really keen to learn more about that from you. But before we get into that topic, I always like to go with guests back in time. So I'd invite you to jump in the time machine over here and tell us a little bit about what life was like for you when you were four or five years old. Where were you living? And yeah, what, what was it like there? Uh, so that's, uh, that takes them back to the kind of mid eighties. And um, I think what, uh, so I grew up in Soviet Union. Um, well, I, I was born in Soviet Union, right? I finished my growing up in West Auckland because we moved uh, here uh, when I was 15. Mm -hmm. But way before, so mid 80s would have been uh, uh, going to the rivers, fishing, because we lived in a a town which was built as a shipbuilding yard in 1700s. It was the uh, the the first uh, kind of major city that uh, Russia built uh, on the on the Black Sea. And uh, we were built as a shipbuilding yard first and, and with houses to house the, uh, the workers. And we had about four shipbuilding yards, I think, when, when, we, uh, when, when I left. Uh, we had built about half of the Russian fleet uh, from the, starting from 1700s through all, all the way through the Russian Empire and then Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, we, we were located on two major rivers uh, they had to be deep, obviously, because, you know, ships. And uh, we we lived right by the water. So I grew up with water, grew up, grew up next to the sea, which is not exa- exactly not very different to Auckland. Uh, and uh, my, whenever I talk to uh, Kiwis who were growing up in the, at about the same time in New Zealand, and, and especially boys, it, it was all going, uh, you know, going swimming, running around with sticks, uh, not much different to to any other uh, I guess, childhood. So it sounds like it was quite outdoors sort of childhood, but I am quite interested in what life was like there because I don't think anybody listening probably had the same experience as you. Um, like what was growing up, what was your impression of the West, for example, as a young child? Because this is all happening, you know, before the big change, right? Uh, well, that's right. So we, uh, I, I get First of all, at that time, not much thought was given uh, to the West. So we, we there was a, a sort of a, a a competition on the news. You you know you had things like uh, oh, the West is the enemy, um, much like I think the I read somewhere on Twitter the, recently that that uh, in the U.S. for example, they still treat Russia as the enemy. So I guess even from that point of view, it was fairly symmetric. Uh, but to be fair, we had access to uh, some of the same pop culture, which is just, just before we started, the, right? We talked about watching um, Star Wars and, uh, and, uh, mm. um, and the aliens. So we were, things were filtering through, but not in terms of the West, not much of an impression. We did, we could travel freely to, uh, you know, within the, uh, like to the Eastern, um, Eastern Germany, for example. My grandma was, uh, 
uh, went to to India and uh, Romania and Turkey and Eastern Germany, and so we we were relatively well traveled within the um, within even even you could travel to the West. Yeah. So, what are your memories then of the change? I guess um, you know in terms of what what it was like and then what it became. Were you still a young child at that point, or? Uh, well, the change happened in uh, so I was nine. Um, I it was a period of incredible elation because people, so first of all, okay, so 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 there's another point about it. The early '80s and the end '80s were quite different. By the uh, by the end '80s, there was a lot of uh, kind of things were breaking up at the seams, and I, and I think it would be fair to say that earlier that was not so. Like one of the things I remember vividly is. So we, we had a, in a public space, there would be a, a machine dispersing uh, sparkling water and there would be a glass there that you could wash and then use it for the machine. And nobody stole the glass or broke the glass. So there was a lot of, and, and I remember as a, um, uh, as a kid, we were, uh, we had um, like each uh, class would look after the school and clean up kind of maybe our floor and even serve, go to the cafeteria and uh, prepare the food for the kids to come and uh, to eat lunches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a three-course uh, three meal. Uh, the, the tea was always kind of tepid and had a lot of sugar, so it wasn't, you know, it was not really super great tea. But apart from that, it was still a three-course meal. So there was a lot of stuff that, that, I, that I remember as being kind of good. We looked after the community. So, um, the uh, and it was also a safe place. My um, reference travel and my father backpacked through all of the Soviet Union through the mm-hmm. places like right now. You 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 look in the news and there is another uh, armed conflict between um, Armenia and Azerbaijan, right? Uh, all of like at that time you could travel to all of those places. There was no uh, like you, you know, people were welcoming. Mm-hmm. So then the end eighties was was a bit depressing and you could see and either. It's the function of my growing up because, you know, you grow up and you see more things. Uh, I think there's more to it. I think that the things were kind of not working out. So when the change happened, we were, uh, every, everybody was elated. It was a, a period we felt like um, the shackles had come off and um, uh, it, everything can only go better. And then it went worse. Right. Uh, so, Yeah. And, and so then you eventually left, you know, you said you were age 15 and left. Yes. What, what was going on there with your parents and how did they end up coming to New Zealand? Uh, in, interesting point. I completely randomly, uh, they got to know some people who had been my, you know, who had gone through the period of, of applying uh, for New Zealand um, uh, visa to, to come and be permanent residents. And they had got it one year before my parents. And so they basically told my parents about the process and we didn't know much about New Zealand. I learned about, about, I learned some things about New Zealand because I was um, in one of the two schools in our city where uh, we had English uh, from uh, like from primary school. So we had been exposed quite, I mean, we were celebrating Halloween and that sort of stuff. We were actually like quite, quite exposed into, into English culture, both, uh, both, both the, uh, the UK and the American culture. Uh, and so I had learned, but to be fair, New Zealand is far away from where we were. So yeah, it's just randomly really happened. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? How life paths, you know, you're here, you're in Auckland, the way that life journeys go and, and come. I talked with lots of people and sometimes it is this sort of, well, I met someone and they said, you should go visit New Zealand and I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, up, up until last year, the world got, uh, I mean, mid-90s was still far away. We, we traveled, I don't know, it was uh, 38 hours it took us. I, I, it was many, many changes and, and, you know, hanging around in the airports. And we actually had not gone back for years. I've never been back, to be fair, but my parents had, had gone back. Mm-hmm. But, you know, up until COVID, you could, uh, 24 hours is all it took, you could, you could get there. The world, yeah. the world, the world got uh, much smaller, and now the world got kind of much bigger again. Got a lot bigger again, yeah. So, what was it like for you? You know, put put paint the picture for you as a fifteen-year-old. It's kind of a interesting time of life as you're discovering who you are, and you know, teenage years. 
what was that like coming to a completely different country and adapting? Uh, Tough in a way. I, I, I get it like I, as a kid, I was a dreamer. So I could live in my own head quite, quite well. So it wasn't, um, I actually didn't, uh, plus I had a quite, quite a good uh, uh, background of, uh, you know, of English uh, culture and the language. So for me, adapting was, was, it was not any more difficult than it would have been in, in, in a, in a, in my own sort of culture up till that point. Okay. Uh, but um, I like, I could, what, what, what took a long time. Well, first of all, two points, right. Um, English accent took quite, quite a bit of time getting used to. Uh, I, I've spent the first um, half a year watching TV. After that, I was fine. Uh, and uh, then I went to, to high school and uh, I, I built a community of people who had, like, was, wasn't really hanging around with, um, uh, with, with people who spoke Russian necessarily, but I was hanging around with everybody who had come to New Zealand at around that time. So uh, my best friend was from Taiwan. And uh, what, what connected us is that we all both came to New Zealand at, uh, in, let's say, around 96, 95, 96. Right. It's interesting. I, I would have thought it would have been more of a transition. But um, yeah, it's really interesting to hear that. And did you know what you wanted to study sort of coming to the end of high school? Did you have an area that appealed to you more than other things or... Or yeah, guide us through the next couple of years. Yes, but uh, I wanted to make computer games. Okay. <laughs> so that was very, very specific, very determined. What well, ended up doing completely not that, but but that was that was the thing. Huh. So I went to uh, I I had I had also taken economics because, um, uh, and this is ultimately what I ended up doing. So I had taken economics because somebody. A friend of, uh, so I had a friend that was uh, my best friend and uh, somebody that, that he highly regarded who was uh, a couple of years as senior had uh, finished high school by then and gone to study economics. So because my friend was talking about it, I was like, oh, okay, well, now I can take economics here as a, at high school and uh, went to Avondale College. Uh, and uh, I thought, okay, let, let, you know, it sounds like a cool thing. So let me study that. Mm-hmm. And I ended up... Um, doing quite well in it actually so i had that was one of the uh, i had taken economic i had done a conjoint then uh bcom and uh, bsci at uh, auckland union so i was doing computer science on the on the bachelor of science part and um, i ended up doing economics on the bcom side Hmm. and what was it that you like about economics like what was it that appealed to you something that i know is a myth but at that time, what appealed to me is the elegance of the of the mythical mathematical models. So I was, I was quite into math, and it was just an application of mathematics to to human behavior. Uh, at that time, even though you know Kahneman and Tversky did their work in the seventies, for which Kahneman ended up uh, Tversky unfortunately died, uh, but Kahneman ended up getting a Nobel Prize. Even though it existed since the 70s, it, it wasn't at the, at the time that I went to the university and did my undergrad, we had pretty much not really heard of behavioral economics. And that, that came later. So it was still a, a kind of a, um, well, what I would, what anybody would call, I guess, traditional economics is, is, uh, is the elegance of the, it's just very deceptive. It's, it's, the models are very elegant. They don't work. So, so give us an example, because not all of us have studied economics. Like, what would be an example of a model that really appealed to you that you thought, oh, that works? The free market achieves the uh, the the social optimal outcome, right? So you 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 work through the equations, and it's just it's just great. It's like free markets. There, there is no dichotomy between, uh, you know, the what what the market achieves is what anybody would want to achieve, and you cannot improve on it, and it's it's uh, it's pretty optimal. Now, if you get into the weeds, you you actually, and I, this is something that I, I I kind of go like, why why is it not obvious? It only works under a, a seven or nine assumptions. Um, uh, the the let let's look at the first whatever. So you've got perfect information. 
you've got perfect entry and exit. You've got no price setting. So everybody's a price taker. You've got uh, so perfect competition, um, perfect inform information, perfect knowledge. So I know what you know, and I know what you know about me knowing what I know, and so on and so forth. And if you look at any of those, and there, there had been like Joe Stiglitz uh, basically won a Nobel Prize for just uh, tweaking one of those assumptions and proving that the market fails. If you, if you tweak any of those assumptions, you're not gonna get to the, to the optimal outcome of the market. And I, I don't know about you, but when was the last time that you saw a perfectly competitive market where everybody knew everything and you had no barriers to entry and no barriers to exit and uh, nobody set prices? So it's just, you know, the, the world doesn't work that way. Yeah, my experience is that it, it does not work that way at all. <laughs> In fact, I yes. just wrote a, I wrote a um, little article for Spinoff Magazine just looking at house prices and the illogic of house prices in Auckland versus Christchurch, you know, and, the, and but then the resulting um, flow on social impacts of the average house price in central Auckland now being $1 million, meaning that, you know, people can't afford to buy a house. They can't afford to own a home. And then the flow on implications in terms of social housing, community support, like all of these other things that result from the market supposedly being able to set the right price. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. so, uh, Oh, right. There was also, you know, one, one of the key things that there are no externalities, right? I mean, we know that like there are externalities all over the place. Take, uh, to take uh, greenhouse gases, the massive externality that, that is up until now not priced. So, yeah. In fact, I now see the, the world more through the lens of market failure than, than of the efficient markets. And, it just, mm. and, and those things need to be corrected in some shape or form. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, we also have the fact that humans tend to be selfish <laughs> rather than altruistic. And, uh, you know, uh, not yes and no, there are, there are actually some uh, findings from the behavioral economics where uh, that, that is not true, that, that people do incorporate the decisions about uh, and, and the impacts of what they do on, on, you know, on others. So we actually, so it, it, it's not, I wouldn't take that binary uh, view of selfish versus uh, it, it's, it's a bit comp more complex than that, but uh, no, in, in many cases we do think about how we Im impact others. And because of that, uh, because we're also social. So we can't actually behave in a perfectly selfish way because the, the society would ostracize us. So we do act, uh, you could call that as, as maybe it's a, you know, um, being socially conscious because of selfish reasons that, that, that could be, but we do care about others and about the way that others view us. So, um, so it's a bit more complex than that. Where I do think that that what, what does fail is um, uh, we tend to have uh, hyperbolic discounting, which means we don't really take into account what happens tomorrow, uh, much less in, in, in a year or, or 10 years, 20 years time. So our time horizon for making decisions is very, very short. We, we're very bad at incorporating outcomes, uh, you know, like even a week from now, it's very difficult for us to have that concept. Yeah. And so, you see that, you see that in reporting for companies as well, don't you, where it's kind of the next quarterly report or the yearly report rather than thinking in, you know, 50 years or a hundred years, what will this look like? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this, this takes us into all sorts of efficiency versus effectiveness conversations where, you know, if we optimize short-term efficiency, we do really, really good. So like uh, think about um, the number of uh, intensive care beds in a, in a hospital. If we are running a slack of those, it, it's really great if a pandemic comes along, but most of the time it's kind of a waste of, of resources. So if we take into the most of the time it's a waste of resources approach, then we don't have many ICU beds. So we're not prepared for when, the, when, when really big stuff hits. Yeah. Because we don't have that, that long-term outlook. Mm. 
Oh, it's really interesting. And so that obviously captured you in terms of the different models and ways of thinking. What happened next after you'd finished your initial studies? You, you continued well, looking into that? Yeah, I, I always wanted to be an academic. And uh, so for me, it, it's, it wasn't really... Well, maybe that's, a, that's a, again, as a, a um, uh, peer pressure because I was really good friends with several people and, and we were all kind of independently or maybe dependent, codependently kind of wanting to be academics. So that's everything we, we ever, it was not a conscious choice. It was not like, do I do this or do I do something else? It, it was, of course I do this because that's what we do. And um, so I applied to a PhD program and I got, uh, I actually applied to a number and I got, um, into a number of European universities. And uh, so Mannheim uh, attracted me for a number of reasons. That's great. And what were you, so you knew it was a, was it a PhD program you were going into or a master's yes. that changed? It was, and did you have an area that had a focus or? Uh, no. So they train you to do, before they admit you to do research, you have to go through the coursework. And so you don't have to have a topic because you can develop that as you go along. Oh, that's good. So as you're doing it and, and you're developing, was there an area that started to appeal to you that you wanted to really specialize in? Yes. I was still going through with my mathematical, kind of highly theoretical mathematical economic band, and I really got into game theory already already in, um, um, in Auckland. I think game theory is actually more applicable to the, to the real world and to business and probably should be studied a bit more than it is. Although it is part of, of pretty much any MBA program. So maybe it is studied enough already, but it's, it's applicable. At that time, I started changing my approach to economics from elegant mathematical models to more applied stuff. I was like, let's go and test. Let's see what works in the real world. Let's not, I even, I, it got to the point where I, I, I was not, so the traditional approach to the applied economics is you 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 have a theory and you test it and i kind of went even beyond that i said okay well let, let's just kind of find out what are the let's have questions rather than have theories let's have questions and then let's go and see what could be the answer to those questions right so just before we go into that t tell us about game theory because i know it, for you it's obvious what it is, but I think for many of us, we haven't studied it. And um, yeah, I'm really curious to understand how it, what exactly it is and how it applies to our lives or looking around at the world. Have you seen A Beautiful Mind? Yeah. Okay. Well, so uh, that would be a good primer on game theory. Mind you, I haven't. And the reason why I haven't is because I, I know about the, the, I think, you know, the, there were some misrepresentations and, uh, uh, the, the, there were some other things that I so I probably didn't want to kind of contaminate my understanding of game theory at, at that time of with the with the pop culture representation. But for what it's worth, it's a, it's a, it's a good. So, uh, what is a game? A game is a mechanism where which has some rules, mm -hmm. and it has actors. And the key part, as as opposed to the kind of traditional, you know, uh, microeconomics where nobody is a, you know, everybody's a price taker. So in a traditional economics, you only need to look at the price and you make decisions based on that. So you ignore the actions of everybody else because all of those are summarized in the, in the price. Game theory is where you have few people or few entities, which is I, my, my personal belief is that how most markets work. So your actions then influence the other person or the other actor. So a, uh, you know, chess would be a game, uh, but so is an oligopolistic market, uh, a price setting between um, uh, Vodafone, Spark and two degrees would follow game theoretical uh, rules. They, they do react to each other's behavior. Sometimes there is a best action which leads to a suboptimal outcome. If you've heard of a prisoner's dilemma, it's one of the most famous games. It is where so if two people who committed a crime uh, are taken into different rooms and they don't know what the other person would do and the police offers them a, uh, uh, so they have two choices. They could either read the other person out or they could bite their tongue and not say anything. 
for them jointly, the best outcome is both is if both of them bite their tongue and don't say anything, they will be released. Mm. But a police is, is, is introducing a, this is where the incomplete information comes in. And what the police is saying, look, your, um, your mate is about to rat on you. So if he rats on you, you go to jail. And that person basically gets a slap on the wrist. So if, if, ni- if neither rats, they don't go free. They actually, they, um, uh, let's say they spend a night or a week. But if the person who rats on the other person goes to, uh, that person goes free, but the other person goes to jail. Now, if both of them rat rat each other out, they both go to jail. Individually, it's best, it's a dominant strategy to always rat um, your mate out. But that leads to a suboptimal outcome jointly because both of them are uh, are basically both go to jail and get screwed. Mm. So this is a problem of uh, coordination in this regard is not available. And you can have those, uh, the, 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 the prisoner's dilemma is, um, has, has that story, which is very, um, you know, it's very evocative, but it's kind of a negative story. But you could turn it into other positive stories where it might be better for companies to coordinate or how pursuing, and this is where the, the selfish stuff comes in. It's like, so you're right. In some cases, it's so obvious that the selfish behavior actually leads to a suboptimal outcome for the society. So it's really uh, interesting. Yeah. It's so it's using the analogy or the picture of games to work out how people make decisions. And I think um, I'm just thinking of two things that spring to mind. The first one is the study that's been done on children where you place two sweets in front of them and say, if you want to eat, uh, how does it go? (laughs) If you want to have one sweet, you can have it right now. If you wait five minutes, you can have both of them. And then that turns the theory into actual real test, doesn't it? Like, will they delay the gratification to get double or will they have the immediate gratification and have one? Yeah. Yeah. So, and and that study was, uh, um, so so that, that, this is now exactly getting into the realm of uh, behavioral economics. And this is when, and I think game theory works very well with behavioral economics is where you can study those uh, exactly, you know, you, in this particular case, uh, you study decision-making across time. So the, the immediate gratification versus the delay gratification, you can, you know, and those types of experiments show that, um, you know, they kind of showed the hyperbolic discounting, which I mentioned before that, uh, and it's not something that, that economists thought of because it's not rational. Uh, rationally, you know, you would actually wait, um, Uh, five minutes and get two. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting bit then is, you know, that Dunedin study where they're looking at the life of people. And if you could look at somebody when they're five years old, how did they make decisions? And then when they're 45 years old, how has their life sort of panned out? Like, what has it meant that they had that tendency to have delayed gratification? And then the other thing that strikes me about the games thing is um, I, I quite like catching up or reading Simon Sinek and the things that he's talking about. So he had a book that came out called The Infinite Game. And so he was talking about the fact that most people think about business as a finite game with rules. And there's kind of a, everybody is playing to those rules. But he was talking about an infinite game that actually you have to have a long-term perspective, you know, and that that applies in business as well. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting concepts, isn't it? Yes, uh, and and there is something about um, um, I have to go and review my notes on the on the infinite games. There is there is something about the uh, the time dimension for sure. In repeated games, you get uh, different results, um, and there is a difference between infinite games and just repeated games. Because repeated games, it's still a finite. You would work backwards from the very end. You would end up pretty much in the um, one-off game. Uh, but uh, no, you're right. Yeah. So what did that lead on to, you know, when you're studying your PhD, it takes time. And um, did you know what, what you, you mentioned academia appealed to you? Um, yeah. Did you know where you wanted to head and like having gone to Europe, did you think 
you would stay there or you'd come back to New Zealand? You're, you're here now. Uh, so what yeah, no, no, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good point. Uh, the, uh, well, the reality of it is that life happened and I met my wife at the university. And, uh, so I, I wasn't even planning on staying in Mannheim all that, that long. And in fact, um, uh, my professor, uh, organized my going to Toulouse. I was going to go to Toulouse in, in my third year um, and uh, write research there. But, um, well, that didn't happen. And uh, I, normally you would, the life of an academic is the one of a kind of an, of a, of a, of a nomad. Uh, you go, you travel wherever you get a job until you get a tenure and then you can't be fired and then you stay there. Right. <laughs> so that's, uh, that, that's, that's pretty, you know, and if you are, uh, if you're good, you get a um, uh, you get a sort of a pick of your top places, and you tend to go where the exciting research happens. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and then maybe even I mean some people then uh, go somewhere else, but later on you're able to make uh, more of lifestyle decisions. At, at the beginning, it's most uh, it's not dissimilar to the market for. Um, classical musicians. So we, we sponsored the APO and uh, the APO has uh, people from all over the world. And uh, whenever there is an opening, you uh, get, you know, you, you audition people from all over the world because at any given year, there could only be maybe, you know, a handful or, or a dozen openings and not even a dozen openings around mm -hmm. the world for, for somebody at the, at the peak of their game. So you got people who never thought they would end up being in New Zealand, uh, but there was a, a job. Not my story, but if I were to pursue the academic career, that would have been, so I could have ended up, I could have also ended up here. Mm. But I could have also ended up somewhere else. The reason why we did end up here is that my parents were here. So right. when we had kids... Uh, we needed grandparent support, and that's uh, it's really important. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. That's definitely a big help. <laughs> As someone speaking who doesn't have the parents in the same city, it would be a huge factor if they were. <laughs> and in terms of your, um, you know, what you're doing today and how you got into that, um, can you just describe a little bit about that? And and yeah, what's keeping you busy? And I'm really curious about this time of uncertainty. How do you make decisions? Once I've made up, oh, sorry, once I've discovered that I probably don't need to add another academic paper, uh, but I'd rather use the uh, tools that I was, uh, you know, that I, that I studied and researched and go into, into the real world, so to speak, sort of, uh, it's where I went into, um, use the connections, the McKinsey connections and found uh, of a small company that was uh, headed by two McKinsey consultants who were effectively doing strategy consulting, but based on based on data and and analytics, and uh, they they specialized in credit risk modeling. So I joined them and uh, and started applying the tools that I've learned to to real world problems that had tangible impacts, and sort of went from there. And then ended up in New Zealand because of the because of the family situation. Yeah. The um, uncertainty is a is a there is a lot of popular business literature that uh, tries to convey that business that there, there is a uh, you know there is a science to business. So if you do that, if you do this, that will happen. I, unfortunately, that's not the case. In natural sciences, there is a very clear uh, cause and effect, and you you know you could um, Newtonian physics is very clear. Humans don't behave like that. Humans are well, and, and the the organizations of humans are very complex systems, and in the complexity, you've got a lot of. Uh, first of all, it's already not clear what what causes what because it's it's too complex, um, and. and there is also a lot of randomness. And by the way, uh, for somebody who um, looks from afar, uh, quite often randomness and complexity are the same because you don't know what's going on and you can treat it as, as random. And this is where the, um, the uncertainty comes in. There are, no matter who you, like there are a number of different frameworks to look at, uh, at that. 
there is a spectrum of uncertainty. There's what's called deep uncertainty. And what we are having now is part of that. And this is really where all bets are off. This is not you, and, and the economists call it, uh, uh, have this concept of 19 uncertainty, which it's named after an economist called Knight, where it's not even clear what the outcomes are and what is the probability distribution of the outcomes. So normal uncertainty is, uh, you know, let's say you flip a coin, right? You don't know whether it's going to be heads or tails, but you know that if the coin is fair, 50% of the time it will come up heads and 50% of the time it will come up tails. Uh, 19 uncertainty or deep uncertainty is that you don't know whether it's heads or tails and you don't know whether it's 50% or whatever. It could be five, it could be, you just literally don't know. So this is the deep uncertainty. And in a, in a very deterministic world uh, of uh, Newtonian physics, if you drop an apple, it falls down on Newton's head, that, that you, you know that, uh, you know, gravity causes that. So you, and you can measure it. And there is a whole spectrum in between. So there is a, uh, a very nice framework for thinking about it in the uh, human organizational sense, and it's called the Kinefin framework. And that goes, um, basically has four quadrant. quadrants. Quadrants uh, is like uh, uh, simple deterministics, complicated. Complicated is where already a little bit more stuff happens. Then you've got complex. So complicated is there are known unknowns and complex is where there are unknown unknowns and then there is chaotic and in the chaotic context all bets are off a couple of things there once you understand this based on where you are on that uncertainty spectrum you need to do different things what works in a simple context is not going to work in a complex context and it's not going to work in the chaotic in the simple context you can uh, take a factory that does stuff, you can, you can basically put robots, and this is how, how most of the modern manufacturing works. You can put robots and you can, it's a very controlled context where you can um, optimize with, with, with huge precision, you know, what's gonna happen next. In the complex systems, you, you, so you get best practice. Then as you move towards chaotic, you, you, you go best practice, good practice, and you got maybe, no practice at all because you could have multiple answers. So you need to run experiments in order to figure out what, what could work better. But the idea that you have the best answer is already faulty. So you need to move away from that. You, you don't have the best answer. You could have a number of things that work. In the chaotic setting, you don't actually, there is no concept of, of uh, there's no visible cause and effect anymore. It's, it's chaotic. And so what you do in a chaotic setting, which is what, uh, what happens in a crisis, is that you need to stop the bleeding. You need to stabilize, stabilize the patient, so to speak, right? And, and it's, it, you don't even worry about treating stuff. You just need to make sure that, that, that the patient doesn't die, that, that something really bad does not happen. And you need to stabilize. And then once you've stabilized the situation, then you start getting into that, that in, uh, you, go, you start going through those quadrants and you start controlling a little bit more and controlling a little bit more. The issue happens is that without understanding, I think it's not, these are intuitive concepts. These are not wild concepts, right? But it helps to, to structure that in that way. If you don't understand where you are on that spectrum, your actions that could work in part of the spectrum could lead to completely bad outcomes in the other part of the spectrum. So this is why it's, it's important to just even categorize it in, in this way or similar categorization if you can find it. But it's really important to understand that different actions lead to, so there's, there's no good strategy that works across the board. In, in these different contexts, you need to do different things in order to not fail or progress. So that, that, that's a really key thing to understand and i think if uh, you know so that and and the, and it's all driven by the fact that there is no in the in the human whenever groups of humans are involved there is a lot of randomness and so an action that could be a good action might still lead to a bad outcome because of that randomness and the bad action could sometimes lead to a good outcome again because of the randomness and i guess One, then that the point is that there's so many variables in life um that can influence the way things go 
Um, I interviewed someone named Margaret Austin recently, and she was an MP in Parliament from 1984 till 1996. Yep. And, and she gave me, I think I've shared this with you, she was talking and she said, it's, it, it was our job in Parliament to make good decisions. And then she corrected herself immediately and said, informed decisions. In other words, maybe they weren't the best or the good, you know, it wasn't what people thought it would be, but it was an informed decision, looking at Correct. all the facts and then making a decision based Correct. on them. Mm. Absolutely. Totally right. That's, that's, uh, uh, and that's as much as we can do, right? Mm. We, there is no, the, what's best decision is not even, it's not a question that anybody can answer because there could be in fact a number of decisions that could be okay. And it's really, you're, you're totally, well, she's totally right. You're totally right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really good. So in terms of, you know, just we're talking in the context of COVID and a bit of uncertainty around what the future will be. You know, we mentioned before, we it's not easy to travel and that's impacting things. Yeah. Have you got any advice for people as they're coming to make decisions or thinking about the future? Don't worry about predicting the future. It's a fool's errand. You, you, you can't. But what you can do is you can draw uh, a number of scenarios that you think are plausible. And then my personal feeling, and this is really, it's, it's, it's then what is your objective function, right? So uh, we, we talk, that's another part of a game, right? So, so there are rules, there, there are actors, and then there is like an objective, you know, what is the objective of each, what does each actor try to do, right? And, and there are a number of different things. You can uh, try to improve the odds of the best possible outcome. Or you can try to minimize the odds of the worst possible outcome. They're not necessarily the same thing. So depending on where, and, and that depends on your risk appetite, on your personal risk appetite. And if we're talking about uh, corporate decision-making, it depends on the, on the corporate risk appetite, right? Once you've figured out where you sit on that risk appetite thing and you figured out what, what it is that you want to do, you would try to analyze different plausible scenarios of what could happen. And then my personal feeling of the way that I, I do it is that I look at, at things that could maximize my options and then they're not, not going to lock me into a particular outcome. Because I don't know, because there could be scenario A, B, and C, and they could be completely different. But if there is something that I can make a decision now that's going to position me to have options and let's say tomorrow I learn a little bit more about which one of those is more plausible. So at the moment, A, B, and C are equally valid. Tomorrow I might get an, an, an insight that A is not likely to happen and it's really between B and C. Okay, but I don't know that. There could be a world where A and B are likely to happen and C is less likely to happen. So what I need to do now, and suppose I cannot just do nothing, when sometimes maybe doing nothing is the best, we, we do as a, as a species, we tend to, and also in the corporate setting, uh, we tend to be biased towards action. In some cases, really sitting back and, and making no action is, an, is maybe the most informed decision you, you can make because tomorrow you will learn more. And if you don't have to do something today and you're keeping your options open and tomorrow you get new information that could help you go A, B, or C, or maybe, you know, rule out C, then maybe that's what you do. So you try to postpone in, you try to not lock yourself into things you can't escape. You try to maximize options and get, that's all about that informed decision that you mentioned. You're making the decision with the best information and the best knowledge that you have at the time. And you know that with time, you might get better knowledge. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because like, I'm just thinking of a real life scenario, like you want to buy a house and it's yeah. coming up for auction. And so you do the research, you know, there's going to be a day. And on this day at this time, the auction will be held. Yeah. So you do, you get a, a limb report, you get a builder to go yeah. through, you get an electrician, a plumber, I don't know, all these checks that you do as much objective information as you can gather. And then you show up on the day and at 11 o'clock on Tuesday, you're standing in a room and there's maybe 30 other people. And then that's more information. Who's yes. in the room? What's the dynamics? Correct. And then somebody raises their hand when the auctioneer starts the bidding and then somebody else. And what's the strategy? You know, like it's, there's all this data and information that then gets 
Correct. put in? And do you wait to the end and you're the last bidder or do you help push it up higher, faster? It's quite interesting, isn't it? <laughs> but that very much depends on your beliefs about how that's going to influence the, the other parties. Yes. If you believe that that's going to, that, that going fast and consistently is going to scare people off, then that's what you do. If you believe that you should wait until, because then you just, uh, you know, you, you, you see where things land and, it, and, and you can read up on that. And, and it can, you're totally right. It is fascinating. And there, is, there, there are no right answers, but it, it really comes down to um, thinking and, and processing the information. So what, what we can know for sure is that, as you just said, in that instance, you're going to have way more information than you had going in. Yeah. You, you, you can and should use that. But you could already, so what, what helps, I think, is to have a, uh, a number of scenarios to think through them beforehand. You can go in and you can uh, run a little bit of an if-then type of, of analysis. You say, well, if there will be a lot of people and they're going to bid and the price is going to go very fast, then I will act this way. Yeah. And if nobody bids and everybody's waiting for the other, I could act differently. If you do that thinking beforehand, when you're not in the heat of the moment, you could actually condition yourself to, uh, to, to make possibly better decisions, even in the moment, because you sort of write your own internal policy on how you will behave based on some other things. And if you think through it in an objective way without having the, you know, uh, everybody's bidding and it's exciting, right? Without having that excitement, that might lead to better decisions. Now, the drawback, of course, is that you could potentially not think of something that will be relevant, and then you might not act on it. But these are the things that sort of, if you practice this type of, of, of stuff, you get better at it over time. You will create better scenarios, and you will start thinking about, thinking about thinking, it takes practice, right? And if you start thinking about your own thinking, about the way that you start, that you do things, uh, doing a decision diary is really, really good. And start analyzing your own thinking process and your own decision-making process outside of the, of the outcomes. Because outcomes could be random. If you always relate your decisions to outcomes, that's not always relevant because outcomes could be random. But it tried to separate. So here's a, a bugbear also regarding the COVID, right? I'll, I'll just do one. Um, the, uh, some people are criticizing the government for certain things, uh, for, for the handling of the, of the uh, uh, lockdown, right? Or, um, and they say, well, we had cases in the community, so something, some, somebody did something wrong. Well, this is where I think that it's, it's not true because the outcome of having a case in the community, so you, you can, because the world is random and you can't, you know, you can't control people escaping a, uh, a quarantine facility, right? If somebody really wants to escape and go somewhere and they will tie the sheets together and they will escape, it's not a, a maximum security prison, right? So no matter what, like the, the, what, however we manage, there could be some random stuff happening. And just because that random stuff happened, it doesn't mean that, that the management was wrong or that the management was not the best possible management. It just might just mean that, and by the way, I'm not making any statements about whatever I believe, right? I'm just, I'm just saying that just because of a bad outcome, if you, because if you, if you roll a dice, sometimes it will be one. It's one in six, but, but sometimes it will be one. And sometimes it will be something else. What you really need to, to start analyzing more and more is the way that you controlled what you can control. And have you, done, have you gone through a process that would maximize the odds of something good happening? And then if something other than good happened, then okay, fine, it's a roll of the dice. So I think that's, that's another, so if you, there are a couple of takeaways that I, I think I would recommend that the, the audience takes away is that think in terms of, uh, think in terms of uncertainty as a spectrum, think in terms of odds of stuff happening and 
analyze your own thinking and your own decision-making and don't get hung up with the outcomes because outcomes could be inherently random. Yeah, you can control what you can control, but at the end of the day, as we know, you know, I'm living in Christchurch, there's a lot that happens that you would never have predicted, you know. Exactly. So it's, uh, it's just the way it is. That's part of well, being alive, though. <laughs> well, exactly right. Yeah. So in terms of what you're doing today, um, is it mainly consulting work that you're doing with, with people or what, what type of things keep you busy? Um, some pro bono stuff uh, just contributed to the, uh, uh, so there will be, maybe, maybe by the time that uh, this is released, there, there will be a um, sustainable finance forum report. Oh, yeah. Uh, and um, I contributed a, a, a small chapter to that. Um, the, so trying to see where I can add value outside of uh, uh, payment. And sometimes, you know, there are certain things that are a public good. And if I'm able to uh, have some impact, and that's um, uh, that's what I tried to do. In terms of the business, we had historically been, let's say, 80% consulting, 20% coaching. I now see more value in training people. So rather than solving somebody for on somebody's behalf, uh, it's even you know teaching somebody to solve these types of problems such that they don't have to hire us all the time. So that's something that's happening at the moment that we're pivoting towards more education rather than being, you know, 80% consultancy, 20% coaching, being more of a maybe 60% coaching, 40% consultancy. Right. Uh, so that's when this will be executed. Uh, it, it's, it depends on the market a little bit, but but this is something that uh, we're, we're trying to do now. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Well, we'll put links to anything that you want in the show notes. So as people are listening, they can click through and, and find reports and things. And um, we'll put a link to your website as well so people can um, cool, come you. through and, and find things. Um, yeah, there's the, 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 we're also very close to uh, to a new website. That, that I think will be much more informative than the current one. So again, hopefully that by the time the, the episode is posted, maybe we'll have a new website too. Great. Well, we can time it any way you want. So <laughs> Excellent. That, that's maybe really we good. do that. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I did enjoy hearing a bit about your background. I know before we started recording, you weren't sure, but I think it's helpful to understand where people are from to explain some of their journey of how they got to be who they are and what they do today. So thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. Thank you very much, Stephen. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andre. I know for me, there were several things that I learned, in particular, those thoughts about game theory, which I really didn't know much about. If you enjoyed this, then why not check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog? And there's plenty of information at theseeds.nz. There's a Facebook page, a Twitter account, and there's a LinkedIn page. There's plenty of ways to connect. Until next time.